Hi, and welcome to Veg Out, Toronto's vegetarian podcast, where we talk about all things veg in the GTA. We come to you virtually from our homes, and we are heard on CJRU 1280 AM Campus Community Radio. We are part of VegTO, a nonprofit that inspires people to choose a healthier, greener, and more compassionate lifestyle through plant based living. My name is Jeanette, and I'm joined today by my co hosts, Sweda and Barbie, and we're going to start things off with some veg news, courtesy of Barbie. Yeah, so first to start off, we have a few events coming up in Toronto, which is exciting because things were a little quiet for a while. So first of all, coming up on Friday, December 9th, so just one week from now, is the Holiday Wine and Dine event put on by the Social Herbivore. So this is an event where you will get to take uh, learn about and taste uh, many different vegan wines. And as usual, I believe they, um, you know, they always have vegan cheeses for a little wine and cheese pairing. So tickets are $30 per person. And like I said, it includes wine and food samples. And it is a fundraiser for the Toronto Vegetarian Food Bank. So you can definitely find that, I believe, on their Facebook page. If you uh, Google uh, the social herbivore, you'll see it there. And also the very anticipated every year, the Vegan Baking Group's annual uh, holiday cooking exchange is happening on December the 17th. And it's going to be at a condo uh, in a party room around Bayview and Shepherd. So it is on the Shepherd subway line right across the street from Bayview subway station. And although that is Saturday or I think it's a Saturday, it's December 17th. You do have to RSVP. I think it's by December 9th or 10th because people need to know how many cookies to bake and things like that. So again, you can check that out on the Vegan Baking Group's Facebook page or you can email tvabaking at gmail.com if you have questions. Um, are either of you guys going to think of going to either of those events? I don't think I have capacity to cook that many cookies, bake that many cookies this year. Yeah. So I'm going to have to pass. I I don't drink wine, so I could go for the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder because, um, oh, no, that was the Auntie M's thing where they mentioned having non some non-alcoholic uh, wine. I wonder, because I know there's um, another podcast you listen to where they often talk about non-alcoholic beers, and apparently that's becoming a thing. So I wonder, I don't know, Jeanette, do you know if they make non-alcoholic wines now? They do, yes. I've hmm. seen them actually at Tori's Bake Shop. They have a brand oh. called Proxies. Hmm. And Tori's is exclusively vegan, so I would assume that all the wines that they have there are curated to be vegans. Oh. And uh, Proxies, I know, is a non-alcoholic wine. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then in exciting restaurant news, and I apologize because I can't completely remember whether or not Marty had mentioned this on the last episode, but did you guys hear that Revelstoke has opened their Cabbage Town location? Yes, I'm very excited. Uh, yeah. Have you been? I haven't been, but I looked mm. at the menu and they have a vegan vegan brunch and they have mm. vegan baked goods and uh, it just looks exciting. I, I I'm Googled and I'm about a 20 minute walk from there. So I'm going to nice. definitely check it out at some point. Yeah. This goes along with the the debate that we're always having about the East End versus West End. And I keep saying everything new is always in the East End. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's true. And, yeah. and we need some more options, definitely, for sure. In <laughs> 
But then way on the West End, um, this is a little bit old news, but uh, it's still very exciting. So I want to make sure we mention it. You guys might be familiar with uh, Bring Me Some in Hamilton. Have you been there before? Nope. I have not, no. It's the best vegan fried chicken ever. So good. It's like so amazing. And it's definitely worth the trip to Hamilton. And before they used to just have kind of like a little takeout stand in the Hamilton farmer's market. And they have opened up a full dine-in location in Hamilton now. So um, like I said, completely 100% worth a drive to Hamilton if you don't live close to there. I just can't even explain how good their food is. <laughs> is it, so are good. they exclusively vegan or yes. is it? Okay, that's good. They are all vegan. Um, so they have like actual, like, you know, like chicken fingers or you know, wings, I guess is more like it that you can get. Um, but then they also have like so many different sandwiches, like fried chicken sandwiches and they do chicken and waffles and they have sides. I can't remember. They Oh, they have like uh, biscuits and gravy. Like it's kind of like Southern their sides are sort of like Southern themed in general. Um, and yeah, it's very good. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Barbie. Uh, so we're going to move on to the main topic of today's show, which is kitchen appliances, the history of kitchen appliances and kitchen gadgets and all things related to the kitchen and what you actually use to make delicious vegan meals at home. And this was inspired by a book that Sueda read recently. So I'm going to throw it over to her to kick things off. So this is definitely not topical because the book came out in 2012 and it's called Consider the Fork and I was just reading it and I thought, hey, some of these things are interesting. Why not talk about these things in a podcast? And one of the things that I kept thinking about recently and I forgot where I'd read it was this idea that traditional histories don't really talk about food very much. And when they do, they talk about agriculture and how agriculture developed. And we don't really pay attention to the home and, and, and that kind of thing. And I was like, where did I hear that? And I started thinking that it was must have been from a feminist book because the kitchen is traditionally like the domain of the, the woman. And then as I was doing prep for this podcast, I was like, oh, this is where I heard that particular fact. But there's, I feel like there's so much of history that we don't understand. We, we might know about, oh, this war happened and that war happened, but we don't know what people's sort of everyday lives were. And um, I don't know if there's any questions that you have for people of the yesteryear. But one of my <laughs> questions is, what do they do without plastic? Like how do people function without plastic? Like, so much <laughs> is plastic, right? Like if we look around our kitchens, as much as we try to avoid plastic, it's like it's, it's in our fridges, like the, the gaskets and whatever else is inside. It's in the the utensils that we use. Like, yes, sure, they, they might be wooden or they might be metal, but so many of them have those like plastic handles. Um, so what do people do without plastic? Do you have any questions like that? Like any like history questions that you wonder? I don't have a question about that, but I have maybe an answer. Like, because when you said plastic, my first, first thing that came to my mind was like storage. And so like, you know, again, all the foods, all the condiments and things that we buy, they usually come in like, you know, if you get like mustard or ketchup, they come in plastic bottles or Tupperware. I mean, I know a lot of people use the glass Tupperware now, but I can't, as much as I don't like plastic, I can't get on that train because it's too heavy for transporting. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess in the past, I'm one thing is that A, I think food just probably wasn't like it just wasn't stored for as long, right? So you just didn't have as many options for storing food. And then the other thing would be glass jars and things. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've read about that in the book. 
Uh, she doesn't. She doesn't actually talk about that. Uh, there, there are things that are I feel like a little bit missing from this history, and the history is very focused on Western culture. Though she does sometimes migrate a little bit east. But one of the, uh, in answer to your question, um, I know that Indian people even now use a lot of um, metal storage containers like stainless steel. Right. Now that cannot have gone that back that far because stainless steel is not that old. Um, she actually does talk about stainless steel and how it was something that was invented for, uh, I think, weaponry. And then it became something oh. that ended up in our, in our kitchens. Hmm. And uh, one of the things that she says is that the foods that we eat, um, they speak to the time and the place that we inhabit. And so do these tools that we use to consume them. And I wonder if we're going to see that as we talk about this, like the way that vegans use tools versus, versus people that aren't vegan. Also in, in histories, it's often like the upper classes history that is depicted and not really the lower classes as well. So I, I um, watch a lot of like costume history videos and it's always like the aristocrats and what they're wearing. And there are videos where like, yes, but what were the poor people wearing? So that might be interesting as well that like <laughs> the kitchen domain was of, of like working class folks. Um, so it was the history was not as depicted as much as, you know, you always know like the when you think of like the um, epic banquets of stuff for like royalty, um, but you don't think about the people that actually put that food together. Yeah, for sure. It's so funny that you say that because we think of cookbooks. I mean, all three of us, I think, like cookbooks or recipes. <laughs> and uh, we think of things that are meant for the people that actually create the recipes. But and I don't understand this and she didn't really explain it, but she's like, we forget the fact that the the cookbooks of previous eras were actually not for the people making the food, but they were for the people that were presenting it to their guests. Oh. Right. So you're like you're like the fancy person that has maids and chefs and whatnot. And like the cookbook is for you. And then she also talked about how servants preparing meals, there was a lot of labor, like the amount of labor that goes into a kitchen right now is nothing compared to what happened in, in previous uh, times. And some of the instructions for recipes were like, whisk the egg until it tires one person. <laughs> what? And she says, like, she just pictures like this, this lineup of servants you know, one gets tired, the other one steps in, the other gets tired, the next one steps in. And, um, you know, Jeanette, you're talking about like the depictions of things. I know when I was watching um, the special features for Downton Abbey, because yes, I did that. <laughs> they were talking about how, if you notice, all the hard work is actually in the sphere of the women. So the kitchen used to be a really difficult, arduous place to work mm -hmm. in. And that was something that women did and um, all the cleaning. It's always the women that are doing that in the in the um, show. And that's kind of how it was. And I guess and they didn't say this in the documentary uh, special feature, whatever you want to call it. But I guess as time evolved and the kitchen got a little bit easier, then it started switching out and men started getting into that space a little bit more. And it's so funny because it's like, wait, I thought women were weak. I thought we were all dainty and stuff. Why are we being given all the, the hard work? It's like these, these uh, bigotries never fully make sense, do they? Anyways, so do you have any kitchen, fancy kitchen appliances currently? And if not, do you have anything on your wish list? It doesn't have to be a practical thing. It could be like a $2,000 device that you know you're never going to get. <laughs> Fanciest thing I have is a Vitamix. And I bought it used from a neighbor of mine who was getting rid of, of his and upgrading to a newer model. So this was probably eight or nine years ago I bought it from him for like 200 bucks. And I think he bought it new 400 bucks. And to me, it was like $200 for a blender. And I use it all the time. And I couldn't, 
and I know it lasts like a lifetime, but if it ever breaks, I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to buy like another Vitamix because I'm so attached to it now. And, um, and I know in a lot of vegan cookbooks and a lot of vegan blogs, they say like, um, get a good blender. Um, Mm -hmm. and it just, Mm -hmm. it's not just for smoothies. I make sauces in it. I've made, um, soups in it before I've made dips, um, just, whatever you can blend, you can just put it in there and it'll blend. And I, and I love it so much. So that's kind of like the fanciest thing I have in my kitchen, I guess. Um, I don't really have a, a wish list. Like I don't have an instant pond. I don't have an air fryer. I don't have any of that stuff. Um, I know other people who do. So I, um, uh, you know, I've experienced those things, but, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't have a, a fancy, fancy thing right now. Um, that I would like maybe a new, like, um, I'm, I have like one nonstick pan that's just oh, it's a little, looking a little it's looking a little <laughs> worse for wear. So perhaps like a, a very good like one stainless steel uh, or nonstick pan um, maybe in my future. Barbie, how about you? Well, actually, you just maybe think of something I hadn't thought of when you said pan, and I can't remember the name of it. But there is a pan that you might. I feel like it. Like once I saw it somewhere, now I get like Google ads or like ads popping up when I'm on the internet but it's like a pan that is nonstick, but it's not Teflon or whatever. It's like ceramic kind of, and they come in like pastel colors and they have lids. <laughs> they, Ooh, pants, yeah. they look so fancy. Yeah. What yeah. I don't call? have one of those, but I, um, I went to a garage sale and I got um, a ceramic, like it's a plug-in uh, pan. Um, I don't oh. know what you call those, but like, like you, you don't know. put it on the stove. Yeah. So oh. you plug it into the wall. And um, it's ceramic and the person had it new in their box and they were just like, they had it in their basement. They want to get rid of it. I got it for five bucks. That's That's amazing. amazing. Of course, I have to go look it up uh, what the original price was. And it was like $35. But so you plug it into the wall and it works like a regular frying pan. Like you have to put it on a hot plate or something. Like how? No. So there's like a built-in coil in it. Whoa, weird. Yeah. My mom had one of those. Really? She used it only for like frying fish in the house. Of course, I didn't love that, <laughs> but um, it has like a like grill marks on it, right? Or like it'll put grill marks on it. This one is just a regular pan, so I think I I don't no idea what it's meant for. Like people that don't have enough elements, or maybe for people that Ooh. don't have a stove at all. I have no yeah, idea. I, like I was just like door. ceramic pan. Let's see what all this fuss is about. Let's take this. That's yeah. what we should actually ask Steve because Steve right lives in a he he rents a room in a house where I think he doesn't have his own kitchen and I think they do have a communal kitchen but he's mentioned he doesn't like to use it very often um Mm -hmm. I wonder if he has anything like that or if he knows yeah Yeah. um so it's funny uh Jeanette that you say this thing about the blender because she talks a little bit about the history and about the fashion of food and how and I find fashion so compelling and I'm not talking about fashion just clothes I'm talking about in general like the way our taste buds or sorry the way our tastes are just a product of the society that we live in. And in food, there's no way this is true in food, but apparently it is. So she talks about how before the blender and before the food processor, how finely minced and pureed things, those were the things that were in vogue because those are Mm. the things that require a lot of labor, which is the, you know, that's, that's the thing that's coveted, right? Whatever's priciest. And then when the blender and the food processor came out and, you know, suddenly everything's pureed and these fancy (laughs) things are no longer all that fancy anymore because, hey, look, anyone can do it, right? Then chunky things get into vogue. (laughs) Yeah, because then you want to show like, look, a chef with his precious knife skills or her precious knife skills 
created this thing. And yeah, but I'm like, oh my goodness, how does this happen? Like, how do our taste buds adhere to fashion? This is so weird. That is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask then about knives? Because that's, um, I don't know if you know people in your lives that just covet very expensive knives Mm -hmm. or like I didn't have a knife sharpener for a long time. And uh, I told someone that and they're, I think they almost like didn't want to associate with me anymore. They're like, what? You don't have sharp knives? And to me, I'm like, I'm cutting like tofu and mushrooms. I don't know. But actually, you do really need a sharp knife a sharp knife to cut things like, I don't know, sweet potatoes or apples or like anything like that. And it is safer to have a sharp knife than to have a dull knife. So I did invest in like, I think... Amazon had like a $6 knife sharpener that has like, you know, over 500 five-star reviews or something. So I got that and it works perfectly well for the knives that I have. I have like one, I got it on sale, like one really good chef's knife that I keep as like my sharp knife and the other ones I can just do, you know, my my everyday kitchen stuff that, you know, I don't need a a fancy knife to cut a block of tofu, but I'm just wondering about knife um, because knives seem to be like very coveted and in that kind of chefy foodie world that that you have to have these knives right yeah she um she does talk about knives and she i like her opinion because it's so different from everyone else's because everyone does talk about oh you must have like this fancy fancy knife you cannot be in a kitchen without a fancy fancy knife and i get that your knife does have to have some sort of sharpness and you can uh pro tip here um well it's maybe not a pro tip it's a it's a um, amateur um, tip. <laughs> it's a it's a work with what you have tip. Um, you can sharpen your knives on the bottom of your coffee cups, like that that thing that doesn't have the enamel on it. Are you sure about that? Yes, you can. You can actually even see the filings coming off of it. YouTube it, people. It's a thing. A chef friend actually showed me this because he looked at my knives and he's like, these are not sharp. And so he showed me how to sharpen it up because you need to sharpen your knife, but you also need to make sure that blade is uh, is not bent. And that's what that that um, that rod looking thing is for. Mm-hmm. People call it a knife sharpener, but it's not actually right. Honing, so, honing stick or something. I think it's Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she talks about the importance of having a sharp knife, but she also feels like we're a little bit too obsessed with this having expensive and really sharp knives. And uh, yes, it'll make your cutting process a little bit easier, but you have to actually be quite careful as well because it's quite dangerous to have that knife. And if you're if you slip because you're not using the proper technique or even just washing that knife and you put your hand into your sink and you're not really paying attention. Or for me, uh, my sister hates this. When I put my cutlery to dry, my knives they point up. So if I don't pay attention, <laughs> because I don't want to put a pointing down because that, that bottom area, like the where, where all the water drains. Oh, like, yeah. I see what you mean. In a drying rack, the little cubby, and- <laughs> just like sitting on like your counter face up. No, 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 do no, that? no, no. <laughs> yeah. You want the blade to dry properly. So yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I have the, the, the blade pointing up and I'm, and, and she doesn't like that, but I'm like, what are you not looking when you're, you're grabbing it? Uh, <laughs> Anyways, uh, so she's, she talks about how dangerous it can be. And uh, with food processors, you know, most of us have food processors. I actually don't have one. If you have a food processor, then, um, you, you know, like, what is this obsession with even knife skills? What is this obsession with knife skills? So agree or disagree. I just like the fact that she had a kind of different perspective because I feel like everyone in the food world has this like very just with one perspective. Yeah. Um, and I've always heard that having a sharper knife is safer because it, it, doesn't slip when you're, or you don't have to work as hard. Yeah. Um, if it's dull, yeah. So that's that's a good. I 
that would also make sense if you have something really sharp that is also dangerous so yeah and it's interesting she talks about like the history going back to like the 16th century and before that and again this is in europe everyone used to apparently just carry around knives with them so everyone just had like a personal knife that they use for wood carving stabbing eating food whatever they needed it for I hope they wipe it down in between use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And uh, and us ladies, we did this as well. It wasn't just the men folk that did this. Uh, but for some reason in the 17th century, that started changing. And there's a lot of cultural and historical things that, that went into that, which I'm not going to go into. Read the book if you like. But yeah, things started changing in the 17th century. Now, before I go into this, I want to ask you, can you think of the last time you ate Chinese food and needed a knife? Well, like, just eating it, not yeah. cooking it. Yeah, just eating it, not cooking it. Yeah, I can't think of a, a time. I guess not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you don't need it. And that's because <laughs> the Chinese are very weary of knives. And the Europeans started to become like this as well. There's something about sitting around a dinner table and you're supposed to be relaxed, but if everyone's got a sharp knife, well, now I can't <laughs> relax because who knows when Barbie or Jeanette are going to stab me, <laughs> right? The way that the Europeans deal with this is they're like, oh, we're just going to dull our knives a lot to the point that you get this useless thing and to the point that you have to hold it in a specific way to try and make it work at all. And uh, she also gives us a little factoid that the this way that we grip that butter knife that we have is the same way that so many of us grip our knives in the kitchen while we're cooking. And um, that's like improper because you're not Ooh. supposed to put your finger on the, the back of the blade. Um, and again, you can look up proper knife skills, and knife cutting techniques, but the way that you're holding it at the dinner table is different than in the kitchen. And the, the way that Chinese people deal with this um, is that they just do, do all the cutting in the kitchen. So you chop everything Ooh. up so that people can use their chopsticks and they don't need knives. So it's interesting how different cultures end up with these same mentalities or have these same mentalities and have different um, ways of working with this. And of course, now that we are using butter knives, uh, we now need a fork to hold the food while we're, we're doing this. <laughs> as well. Yeah. Back to our appliances that we were talking about. I want to ask uh, a question about microwaves because um, I just very recently got a microwave. I'm like, talking about like just a few weeks ago. So do you have a microwave? Do you have any concerns around microwaves? So wait, you've been going with no microwave and no food processor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so yes, I have a microwave. Okay. I have no fear of them. Um, okay. I mean, I wouldn't, again, I know you're not supposed to heat um, plastic in microwaves and that would mm -hmm. be plastic in any form of heating. I used to, when I worked at the Toronto Vegetarian Association, the first several years I worked there, we didn't have a kettle and my desk was directly, or sorry, the microwave uh, was directly behind my desk as you guys who've been to the office know. And I drink tea all day long. And so I used to make my tea just in the microwave. And so it was like literally, and I'm talking about like, I drink tea all, like I only drink <laughs> tea. There's like no water. So it was like every hour I was putting my mug in the microwave you know, for two minutes or whatever, heating water and making tea that way. Um, and some of you may know I had, I had thyroid cancer. Um, and when I first got thyroid cancer, I was like, is it because I've been microwaving <laughs> water? And so I did research on, again, the stuff that you hear about microwaves and whether or not it radiates or sorry, emits radiation and cancer and all that stuff. And there, there really is no, it's kind of one of those 
myths, I think, or whatever. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, yeah, there really is not a, a safety issue as far as I could tell at that point with having, with having a microwave. And I, I remember I did look into it quite a bit cause I was like, Oh, should I stop using this microwave? And I, I couldn't find any uh, validated research about that. Jeanette, how about you? I, I do have a microwave um, everywhere I've lived. I think there's been a microwave maybe except one place I didn't have one. And I feel like that in the eighties, there was like this microwave panic. I remember as a kid just being oh. like microwaves are dangerous in, in your home. And we, growing up we had like two kitchens like the kitchen in the basement that was like the actual work kitchen where everything got done and then like the fancy kitchen upstairs that you only use on holidays Mm -hmm. and our microwave was upstairs Mm -hmm. so it was part of like the fancy kitchen so we only really used it to make popcorn um i don't think we relied on it to heat up meals but now i i use it all the time i think i'm just like barbie i don't have have an issue with it um i don't think i would cook anything in there but I just heat up stuff and I make sure it's not in plastic. So I feel like I'm okay. Microwave, thumbs up for me. Yeah. You just made me think of something, Jeanette. When you just said you don't cook anything in the microwave, I will get you to change your mind about that. And I wouldn't generally think of it as like, yeah, cooking something from scratch. However, my mom has this cookbook that's like, probably from like the sixties or something that was, it's called like the microwave cookbook or something. And I had totally forgotten about this and just remade it about like a couple weeks ago for the first time in many years, there's this recipe for like a, it's like a berry apple crumble that you make in the microwave. And it's like the best dessert. It's so good. And so I will, I will send you guys, I, we could include the link. Oh no, we can't include a link in the show notes because it's, it's from a cookbook, but I did not use a microwave and this goes back to I lived with a roommate and and she was suspicious of microwaves. So without doing any of my own research, which is always a good place to start, <laughs> I just was like, yeah, okay, microwave's bad. And so I didn't use microwaves. And then uh, quite a few years ago, um, Dr. Greger had released a video that talked about nutrients loss in various forms of cooking and microwave had the least form of nutrients loss. Oh. And so I was like, okay, maybe I should, you know, look into this. And then, I don't know, I just didn't. And then recently I was like, this is just really wasteful. You know, I'm using a mini oven and I was using my air fryer. I have an air fryer where you can actually put your plate inside um, to, oh, cool. heat, to heat up food. And it's like, this is just really inefficient and it's wasteful. And so by next summer, I gave myself a deadline. I must get a microwave. <laughs> and then I was reading this book and I'm like, okay, just look for it right now. So I went on Craigslist. I found one for $30 and it's not as big as the um, what I thought it would be because that was my other thing. It's like I live in such a tiny place where I'm going to stick this thing. But it was yeah, a smaller unit and um, I do not have a fear of microwave. And she talks about how every new kind of thing always comes with fear. It doesn't matter what it is. Like people are afraid of gas stoves. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm afraid of gas stoves yeah because i'm afraid of using a gas yeah, stove using, yeah. using a gas stove <laughs> not the not the um not the what it does to the food so people are afraid of like the what would happen with um with food when you use the gas stove and so in that same way people live in fear of microwaves and she's like it's true that older models did leak 10 i don't know what that is 10 microwave units per centimeter squared 10 something so they leaked 10 something of radiation okay and uh but nowadays it's one whatever again that unit is of radiation but in either case that's vastly less radiation than you would be exposed to simply by standing around two feet from a fireplace which is 50 microwave units per centimeter squared so if you're going to a campfire you're actually exposed to a lot more radiation than you are in a microwave and i was like what I don't understand radiation at all. 
What is radiation? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know it could come from a fire either. That's yeah. Interesting. I guess when you go to the dentist too, and they put that giant thing yeah. on you and run out of the room to take x-ray, like this can't be healthy. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Mm. For sure. Yeah. So, so I've got myself a microwave now. I'm here in the 21st And you don't, you don't need a giant microwave to do most things. Like, yeah. I think, yeah, the, the place I'm moving into now has a very skinny microwave. Like it's kind of like half the size of, of yeah. um, a, a big microwave. And I was like, I don't even know what I would need to, like, what am I missing out on by not having that much space at the top? I'm like, I, I really just put in like leftovers to heat up in the microwave and maybe I'll make Barbie's um, berry compote thing in the microwave. So, yeah. She does mention how it's interesting how we use a microwave to reheat things rather than to cook things. I mean, surely some people use it to cook things, but generally as a society, uh, we don't use it for that. And now I noticed that with my microwave, because it's smaller, it is a lot less powerful. So I do have to heat things up for longer. But I did cook something in a microwave. You can what? cook a pumpkin in the microwave, like a full, <laughs> like, you know, not the huge pumpkins, but like the pumpkins that are like the size of your head, the ones that we use for pie. Um, oh, yeah. I watched this uh, this video where this woman just stuck it in. She she pokes a bunch of holes in it and uh, she sticks it into the microwave for like 13 minutes. And when I was doing this, my partner's like, I don't think you're supposed to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, don't worry. And it worked. It worked. I mean, I was trying to use a huge pumpkin and chop it up so it didn't work as well as it should. But as long as you're using <laughs> that pumpkin pie, it was so easy. Yeah. Um, it was so easy. So Yes, two microwaves. Yeah. How, how long did you have to put the pumpkin in for? Um, it was about 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. That's still better than like 45 yeah. in the oven. Yeah. yeah. That reminds me, Um, I actually used to, what, again, like as I was sort of like growing up and like started to cook, my mom had always taught me that you cook rice in the microwave. Like I didn't even know that you cooked rice on the stove. Like she would just say, yeah, put it in like a casserole dish with water. And like, I forget how long it would go in the microwave. And I remember like when I first moved in with my partner, you know, it's like the first time we went to make rice and I went to like, go put it in the microwave. He's like, what are you doing? It's like, you cook rice on the stove. And I was like, really? I didn't know. So yeah, you can, that's another thing, I guess you can cook rice, which means you could probably cook like quinoa in the microwave, I guess. And yeah, we always cook microwave. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We oh, always cook microwave. Yeah. We always cook rice. <laughs> we always cook rice in the microwave uh, growing yeah. up. So uh, I don't know. I don't know when and why I switched over to using the stove. Maybe it's because mm -hmm. we always did white rice. I'm not sure. Okay, so speaking of the stove and the second part of it with the oven part of it, <laughs> temperature. So before uh, ovens had thermometers, if you wanted to, let's say, bake a pie, how did you make sure that the temperature was right? Any guesses on this one? Throw like a drop of water in and see if it bubbles <laughs> or something. You're like, it works in a pan. Let's yeah. do So uh, you use the paper test. You would rip off a piece of paper, ah. put it in the oven, and if it burned, oh, that's too hot. And so what you were hoping for is to get like a nice dark brown paper. And that's that's like what these recipe manuals would tell you. So you have dark brown paper. Oh my gosh. Now, what is dark brown to you and what is dark brown to me? I have no idea. <laughs> and so the um, the temperature scale and the thermometer, all that stuff was created in the early 1700s. But for whatever reason, they didn't start using it in stoves until the, 19, the early 1900s. Uh, they just didn't, sure. just didn't think of that. Another question for you. Is there a difference? A lot of times you read recipes and they tell you, wait till you get a rolling boil. So whether it's water or whatever, is there a difference between a boil and a rolling boil? Like if you put your thermometer in there and they both say 
you know, 100 degrees Celsius. Is there a difference? I would say yes in how I interpret it. Like, yeah, I feel like, okay, so when it says like a rolling boil, it's like, I know I have to really let it get to the point where it's like, and the bubbles are really all over versus if something just said boiling, I might be impatient. It's like, okay, I start to see a few bubbles. I guess this is boiling. (laughs) Yeah. So I find this so fascinating that even if both those waters are the same temperature, the rolling boil is going to cook your food differently than the regular boil because the rolling boil agitates the water. And so that transfers that heat to your food faster than the same calm water at the same temperature. Like, isn't that wild? And in the same way that the same thing happens in your oven as well, that um, when you measure in your oven, if you have, so I don't, I don't trust my oven thermometer. So I have like one that I put in there. So even if that's telling you that, hey, it's 350 or 400 degrees, that's not taking account of the humidity and how that humidity affects your baked goods as well. And so we don't, we don't seem to have an effective way of measuring these things. No, and then every recipe also says um, there could be spots in your oven that are hotter than other spots as well. So you really have to learn, like any new oven I've used, I I always do like a test batch of chocolate chip cookies and see where and see what the hot spots are, like where um, what I need to adjust. Because I I have my chocolate chip cookie recipe perfected. It's not my recipe, but it's like the recipe that I have memorized, and I can just whip it together, and I know what the I know how long it takes for the cookies to get to a certain point. So then I use that as the test to be like, okay, is this a hot oven or is this a colder oven? Do I need to cook the cookies, bake the cookies longer or shorter or, you know, watch out for the hot spots. Yeah. So yeah, in 2022, we haven't, we have ovens. We haven't perfected ovens. Yeah. Barbie and I are going to show up at your place, Jeanette, because Jeanette's moving. So we know cookies are coming. Oh, cookies are coming. (laughs) Jeanette, you, you, you do have a reason to come to the cookie exchange. Oh, if you want a thousand chocolate chip cookies that are all at different like temperatures and stuff or, or consistencies. Yeah. So speaking of cooking, Jeanette, when you go to bake those cookies, I assume you're using measuring cups? Yes, but I feel like the the world is telling me to use a kitchen scale, but I, I like my measuring cups. Um <laughs> I'm not going to get into that debate, although I do have a I do have a scale, so I don't have a food processor, but I have an ice cream maker, I have an air fryer, I have a scale. <laughs> and you have a pan that plugs into the wall. Yeah, all kinds of gadgets. I hang out I hang out in the kitchen area of Value Village. This is like my favorite. <laughs> so I'm reading this book, and she says something about the cup is is different. It's inefficient. Why do we use this? I'm like, what is she talking about? Cups are not inefficient. They're all 200. 50 milliliters. They're a quarter of a liter. This is not, the, the, sorry, it's not inconsistent rather. They're all very consistently 250 milliliters. And then she says that different countries have different uh, volumes for, oh. for, cu- uh, for cups. And I'm like, okay, obviously she's just so wrong. <laughs> the United Kingdom has 284 milliliters. Canada has 227 oh. And uh, the U.S. has 236.59 milliliters and Australia has 250. So for some reason, I, I, I've been told, I don't know, I somehow got this Australian measurement in my head. <laughs> so I'm still like, how does she get this fact wrong? I'm, I'm going to walk over to my kitchen because I have like four different measuring cups. Mm-hmm. And one of them is 250. One of them is the U.S. 237. Yeah. And uh, I think the other one was two. No, the other one was two forty, which is like the U.S. Mm-hmm. one. Either rounded up, or they're telling me it's two forty, but it's actually mm-hmm. two thirty-seven. Well, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. If you're using yeah. using measuring cups, the question must be asked: of which 
country. <laughs> I have like the Dollarama measuring cups, but I, I've had them for so long. The measurements are just kind of wiped off of them now. Yes. So I have no idea. I'd have to guess, go into a fresh Dollarama and look at them. <laughs> yes. If if they kept it consistent, which I assume they would, it's uh it's so odd to me that everyone has a, a different one. The U.S. one comes from their half pint, and the Canadian one is um, corresponding to eight imperial fluid ounces. I have no idea what that means. I don't know what a fluid ounce even really is. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a little, nice little factoid to end things off with um, about sugar. So back in the day, apparently you would get sugar in these big clumps, and you'd have to like nip things off of them. That's where sugar nippers come from. So uh, you have to nip things off of them and then you need to pound them and use various sieves to get to like the granulated and powdered sugar that we have now. Like my goodness. And you know, people talk about, oh, baking and it's so hard and I don't want to do this. (laughs) You have granulated sugar. I don't know what you're complaining about. What's a sugar nipper? It just allows you to take like chunks of sugar because you get sugar in a loaf. So you use the sugar nipper oh. to like take chunks off. I actually know that if you go to an Indian store, you can get juggery, which is which is sugar, but like a little less processed. And that does come in like a chunk. So when she was talking hmm. about this, it made me think of that. But that that's like, it's so like creamy that you can just slice through it. It doesn't hmm. require any special tools and you're not meant to grind it up. You're just meant to like put it into food and it just dissolves. Yeah. Thank you, Sueda, for bringing all that to us. I, I think my mind's a little bit blown from some of that mm-hmm. stuff. And I feel a little bit vindicated about the knives. So yay. <laughs> so you've been listening to Veg Out, Toronto's vegetarian podcast. You can listen to past episodes on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Remember to subscribe where you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Matt Judge for our theme song. And until next time, Veg, veg Out! out.